Now, I don't quite know when I would need the power of one million candles, uh, but that's what this torch promises me. Uh, I got it a couple of years ago, and if there's ever a power cut, uh, well, I know where it is. Uh, but here's the thing. It's run out of charge. Now, to look at it, there's nothing wrong. Everything's right on the outside, but inside, there's no life. No energy. It's just, well, there is a, a slight orange flicker, but you can't see it. There's certainly not the dazzling beam that there should be. Now, the analogy is scarcely perfect, but there are lots of Christians like this. Christians for whom the spark has gone, who have fizzled out, uh, who feel drained. Do you know what it is to feel like that? Uh, When being a Christian is a slog. When being a Christian seems harder today than it did a year ago or ten years ago. When trusting Jesus seems impossible given the pressures of the week ahead. When following Jesus is too hard, so that in practice we're no different from those around us. Or when being a Christian has become just a list of things we busy ourselves with. With none of the joy of knowing and being known by God. Perhaps for you it's always been that way. We've never known that joy. You see, if we've experienced that, either now or in the past then Zechariah is for us. Yes, it dates from 2,528 years ago. No, I assume it is not well known by most of us. And yet what we will find over the next few weeks, I trust, is that it is a message to people facing similar struggles to us. It is a message from our God, who is the same yesterday, today and forever. And it is a message about how we can be saved by God and about the joys of living with God. It is a message that will do for us what this power cable will do for my torch because it will reconnect us with the source of our spiritual life, the Lord Jesus himself. And so it will set us alight. As our text today says, verse 3, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, And I will return to you. And yet before we delve into that, and especially as we're kicking off a new series in what I presume is an unfamiliar book to most, I think it'll be helpful for us to set the scene a bit and think about the context of Zechariah. So you might want to have a look at the handout that hopefully you got inside the service sheet. And on one side you'll see uh, there's a bit on the historical context and on the theological context of this letter. Now let's start with the historical context and you'll see there are a few key dates and what happened on them and also where some of the Old Testament books roughly fit in along that line. One of the key dates in the whole Old Testament occurred in 586 BC and was the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. The exile God's judgment falling on his own people because of their rebellion. Now turn with me to Ezra chapter 5, to our other reading today, page 477. Uh, We'll spend a little bit of time in Ezra, uh, just setting the scene. So in Ezra chapter 5, the people send a letter to King Darius, and in it they give a sort of potted history 
of what's happened so far. And verse 12 says this, Because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. See, Israel's sin had led to devastation. And it looked as though God's promises had died too. Uh, The temple was destroyed and his people were enslaved. That's 586 BC, but then fast forward uh, down that timeline to 539. And this time it is Babylon that falls. Uh, You may remember uh, Daniel chapter 5 where the Babylonian king Belshazzar um, defiles some of the, the temple wares that have been taken and as soon as he does it, he sees a hand writing on the wall, uh, writing words of Im- imminent judgment. And it is that very evening that the Persians swoop in and the Babylonian king is put to death. And so then, under the Persians who take over, the Jews are allowed to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. That's what Ezra chapter 5 goes on to say, verse 13. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. And so the temple rebuilding begins in 536 BC, as you see. It's a great time for God's people. They're back where they should be. They're rebuilding the temple of their Lord. Surely, normal worship will soon resume. And yet it hits a snag. Have a look at Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counsellors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. See, the uh, surrounding people, they aren't too happy with uh, the Jews being strong, And so they get the lawyers in and they try to start a campaign to put people off this rebuilding project. So there's the external pressures that the Jews are facing. Add to that that 70 years of living in Babylon has meant that the Jews have intermarried with the Babylonians uh, so that there's a good group of people who've come back who have no interest in the temple whatsoever. And what happens is that in 530 BC the work stops. And it stops for a whole decade. You see, they're back in God's promised lands, but they're not living as God's people. They're just not that fussed. And that's why in 520 BC, at the bottom there, God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and they call the people back. They call them back to building the temple, and they call them back to the Lord. Okay, well turn back with me to to Zechariah, page 950 again. That's the historical context. And you'll see that uh, intertwined with it is the theological context that surrounds this presenting issue of the temple needing to be rebuilt. See, the situation that they face, well, they're facing opposition for a start. Opposition that has led to demotivation and half-heartedness in serving the Lord. And alongside that opposition, 
there is also a lack of distinctiveness in God's people. That's true at the national level uh, with the intermarriage. Uh, The last three chapters of Ezra are all about that. Uh, It's not a racial issue, by the way. It, It is a religious issue. God's people are joined with people who care nothing for God. But if it's true at a national level, it's also true at a personal level. Because sin is still the issue for God's people. And it needs to be dealt with before God, but there's no temple. And so there's no worship, no priesthood, no sacrifice. They face opposition, they lack distinctiveness. And so the Lord sends his messenger in Zechariah. And in the face of opposition, Zechariah's message is one of God's victory. The solution there on the handouts. God's victory over his enemies. His people can follow him without fear. And in the face of a lack of distinctiveness, Zechariah's message is one of God's presence with his people. He will work in them to remove their sin and to lead them on in their relationship with him. See, God's victory and God's presence, the throne and the temple, the king and the priest. And back then the Jews had a king, Zerubbabel. He was their leader, a descendant of David. And they had a high priest, Joshua. And yet what Zechariah does over a series of eight visions that is what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks is gradually to fuse those two roles into one in the promise of a great priest king, the Messiah. The one who would defeat God's enemies once and for all and who would establish God's presence with his people forever. So that's where we're heading. I hope that was a a useful few minutes just to help us as we now dive in to this opening chapter. Zechariah chapter 1 then, and verse 3. Therefore tell the people, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And of course, now that we know the setting, we can see the irony of these words, can't we? Because they're said to people who have returned. Geographically, the exile is over. Darius, the Persian king, Cyrus before him, have let the people back. They've returned to Jerusalem, to the land. And yet they haven't returned to God. It's not that they begrudge being home, quite the reverse. It's that they've left God out of the picture. In Haggai chapter 1, Zechariah's contemporary, we've seen, he challenges them that they're so busy doing up their own houses that they've got no time or desire to rebuild God's house. You see, yes, they've returned. Yes, they're rebuilding their lives, but they haven't returned, not to the Lord. They haven't rebuilt that relationship. Do you see how personal it is here? It's not return to my law. It's not return to my land. It's not return to my ways. It is return to me, declares the Lord. But what will that look like? What will it mean to return to the Lord? 
Well, we can think about it uh, both negatively and positively, I guess. Uh, we need to return to the Lord because time and again we turn our backs on him and turn to other things. That's why I find uh, the description of conversion in 1 Thessalonians very helpful. It's on the other side of the handout there. Verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. See, to return to God means turning our back on other things. The things that keep us from him. The idols that we serve instead of him. I guess for some that might mean that we need to turn our backs on things which compete with God for our time so that we're too busy for him. Sure, we can still fit in a few church meetings. Uh, We can turn up on a Sunday. Uh, We can even be on a couple of rotors for for leading this and that. But, But for a personal turning to God, no, there's no time for that. And so we cut ourselves off from our source of life. From the very relationship that is supposed to energise our service. Is there something that sucks you dry so that there's nothing left for your Christian life? Uh, For the Jews back then, it was rebuilding a city. Rebuilding their homes that, that did it. And so to them, the Lord said, return to me. Alternatively, I guess, repentance might mean turning our backs on things which compete with God for our affection. So it's not that we don't have time, it's that we're not interested in him. Now, sure, we'll still fit in a few church meetings, we'll turn up on a Sunday, we'll even go on those couple of rotors for leading this and that. But a personal turning to God, it's not what we're after. We're just doing our bit, doing enough, And yet in doing so, we cut ourselves off from our source of joy. From the very relationship that is supposed to inspire our service. Is there something that is more important to you than the Lord? That you would rather have than him? Well then, return to me, says the Lord Almighty. How easy it is to to go through the motions of the Christian life, the externals of church life, and yet to be turned away from God. Some people can manage to live like that for years. And yet you always end up like this, Torch, running on empty, dead on the inside, no matter how good you look. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty. And I will return to you. That will mean turning from other things. But positively, what will it mean to turn to the Lord? I think the surrounding verses here, 1 to 6, flesh it out for us in three main ways. The headings, they're on their handouts. And the first thing is that we return to the Lord by confessing to an angry God. See verse 2? The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me. Now, I wonder what your reaction was when you saw this heading on the sheet. 
that the Lord is an angry God. Because it strikes me that this is a truth on which Christians have lost their nerve. Uh, We like to speak of God's love. And so we drop all language of God's anger or wrath. Especially when talking to those who need to turn to him. And if we must speak of God's anger, which I take it we must at times, we think, uh, we try to divert it or water it down. Perhaps you've heard it uh, said something a bit like this. Yes, God is angry, but God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. And yet it seems to me that the Bible never makes that sort of distinction. And certainly not here, when the Lord is speaking to people who need to turn to him. And yet the first thing he says is to remind them of his anger. His anger on their forefathers. Anger that was because of their sin, for sure. But which was not directed at their sin in an impersonal way. It was anger directed at them. It wasn't their sin that went into exile. It was them. And so the Lord pleads, verse 4, Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, This is what the Lord Almighty says, Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? You see, when the Lord says, return to me, he does so as a warning. A warning to us. And we need to learn the lessons of history, just as Zechariah's listeners needed to learn the lessons of their history. That in the past, entire nations have been wiped out because they did not listen or pay attention to God and they would not turn from evil. And if they did not survive, then how will we? The Lord is rightly angered by sin. He is rightly angry with sinners. And so we must return to him. For to fail to do so is to incur his judgment. We need to fear the Lord. And so to turn to him will be to confess to admit what we've done, the way that we have rejected and ignored him. That's what the Israelites eventually did in verse 6 there. Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Now returning to the Lord means confessing to an angry God. But then next... Returning to the Lord means trusting in an almighty God. Again and again in these verses, we hear that title of God, don't we? He is the Lord Almighty. Three times in verse 3 alone. It comes over 50 times in Zechariah. Watch out for it in the coming weeks. And it is a title that speaks of his power and of his glory. The phrase literally means the Lord of hosts the Lord of armies. And it means that whatever opposition we might face, he is greater 
Whatever enemies, he will defeat them. He always does. That's the point of verse 5 there, isn't, isn't it? You cannot escape God's word. It always overtakes his enemies. What he says will happen, will happen. And what has he said? He said that he will rule. That all his enemies will be made his footstool and that he will protect his people. And we'll look at that more in the first vision next week. For us, returning to the Lord will mean that we trust him. We trust him with our lives. We trust him with the week that lies ahead. We trust that he will provide what we need. We trust that he'll provide everything for which we were turning to idols to provide. Fulfillment, peace, happiness, security, hope, pleasure, whatever it might be. Return to the Lord will mean trusting in an almighty God. And then finally, returning to the Lord will mean rejoicing in a returning God. Because that's the great promise of these verses, isn't it? Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. In spite of our sin, in spite of the Lord's anger, in spite of our insignificance compared with his greatness, he will return to you. And so to return to the Lord is to rejoice in knowing that he comes to us. That he becomes for us a loving father with his child. That he makes us his delight. Forgiving and cleansing our sins, keeping us through all opposition. And note that there's no hesitancy here from God. It's not, I will if you will, but, but you go first. No, here the Lord takes the initiative. Sending his word, calling to his people, remembering his promises and saying, won't you come back to me? If you do, I will be there. It is a call that he makes to us, ultimately, at the cross. When the Messiah comes, our king and priest, God's victory and God's presence because it's at the cross that we see God's anger and yet it is turned aside directed onto Jesus it's at the cross that we see God's might because even in the weakness of his death Jesus defeats our every enemy once and for all and it's at the cross we see the Lord return restoring perfectly his relationship with his people. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. So let's return. Perhaps you can't return because you've never turned to the Lord. And you know that. Well, well turn to him today. God's anger makes it necessary. God's might makes it beneficial. God's returning love makes it wonderful. And the cross makes it possible. So turn to him. Confessing, saying sorry for turning away. Trusting, trusting him with your life. Rejoicing in a new relationship with him. Well, perhaps you've been a Christian for a while now. 
And yet in recent years you've become half-hearted, tired, you're giving up. The daily grind of discipleship wore you out so that you've drifted. There's probably been no great crisis or lapse into sin. But in your heart, you know that you are far from God. Well then today, God says to you, return to me and I will return to you. Or perhaps almost the opposite. As a Christian, you've been steaming ahead. And yet now on reflection, in all your busyness, you are somehow forgetting God. Your activity levels are sky high, but your personal relationship with him has reached rock bottom. Well, then the message is still the same. Return to me, and I will return to you. In your heart, come back to God. Now, we'll have a chance... uh, together to do that later in the service as we share in the bread and wine together, remembering Jesus' death for us in that way. And let's do so confessing our sin, reaffirming our trust in God and rejoicing once again in his love for us. But now let's pray together.